Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Andrew Booth. Uh, he's the chief scientist at Sintef Ocean, S-I-N-T-E-F, uh, in the Department of Climate and Environment. Uh, he's an environmental chemist, and we're going to talk about uh, his work with Sintef and uh, his interests. So, Andrew, thanks for coming. Yeah. Um, sorry, Rich. Can, uh, I usually go by Andy, actually. <laughs> That's how everyone knows me as Andy. So, oh, no problem. Yeah, same for me. Yeah. Instead of Richard, I go by Rich. So, exactly. Andy and Rich. Okay, Andy. Well, tell me about your uh, your background a bit, how you got to work for Syntep, and then we'll go into your work right now. Yeah. So, basically, uh, I was in the UK where I was born and grew up and did my education. And I got the opportunity to collaborate with the one of the Syntep research institutes as part of a postdoc position. And that was coming to an end and they had a vacancy and I uh, ended up uh, moving over to beautiful Norway in, well, 16 years ago now. So I've been over here for 16 years. 
So what does Syntep stand for and what does the organization do? Uh, do you know, it's one of the best kept secrets, actually. It's a very old name. It did stand for something in the past. It's a Norwegian uh, phrase, but it's just Syntef now. That's what it what, what it's called. Um, and Syntef itself yep. is actually five, uh, currently at least, five different research institutes, one of which is Syntef Ocean. And we're a fundamental and applied research institute based here in Norway. We're primarily in the city of Trondheim, but we have quite uh, a number of employees in the capital in Oslo. We have other Syntef institutes, including Syntef Energy, Syntef Digital, um, Syntef Industry. Is it, a, is it a think tank or is it a government agency or? No, we're independent research organization. So we do contract research. It's either winning public money through research councils or government uh, funded uh, open sort of competition, or we work directly for industry or any, any customers. We work directly for local governments, small industry, big industry. And we also, uh, yeah, um, we compete for sort of public funding research with our own ideas. So what we try and do is we use the, the sort of public funding to do fundamental research where we sort of develop new methods, technologies, knowledge, and then we take that to a more applied environment with industry uh, most often. Okay, well, what's your current uh, projects about? What are you working on? So my background, as you mentioned earlier, is I'm, I'm an environmental analytical chemist. So I particularly like looking to measure different pollutants in the environment. So I started out with looking for chemicals and in particular oil. Uh, so I did a lot of work with oil pollution in, in when I was younger. And then over the years, that's evolved through looking into new emerging pollutants. So different types of chemicals that are starting to come onto the market that's got included uh, quite a lot of work on nanomaterials and then microplastic and plastic pollution became really a hot topic in recent years. And so I, mostly in recent years, I've had the bulk of my research has been focused on plastic related issues, but that can be all aspects from being able to measure, finding ways to measure plastic in the environment particularly microplastic, which is these small plastic particles, less than five millimeters. Yeah, so, I've done a, a number of interviews on microplastics. So if, if it's yeah, all right with so, you, let's focus on that. What, um, what facets of microplastic contamination are you looking at? So this one of my particular interest areas uh, is how plastic degrades and how it changes, both in terms of physically, fragments, you know, and how different polymers change uh, or fragment or degrade over time and what processes, whether it's uh, UV degradation from sunlight, whether it's mechanical or physical degradation, microbial degradation, how these types of degradation mechanisms impact the plastic and then also what properties of the plastic control the degradation. You know, certain polymer types degrade faster than others. We're very interested in uh, the role of chemicals, what we call plastic associated chemicals. So these include chemicals that are specifically added to give particular plastic material key properties. It might be increased flexibility, particular colour, resistance to fire, uh, or all sorts of different properties that you can give a plastic material by adding certain chemicals. Yeah, what, what are some of the uh, PAS that are in common plastics we use? Like, I don't know if you know about water bottles or, you know, yeah, other, I mean, you know, we, what's we, added and what? Yeah, we we really uh, we try to work with the the ones that are produced in the largest quantities. So that's your polyethylenes, polypropylenes, uh, PET. That's where your water bottles or drinks bottles come from. 
um, those types of materials, you know, they're the ones produced in highest volume. They're the ones that get into the environment in the highest volume as well. So, you know, we want to look at all aspects of this, really. You know, where do they, uh, how do they fragment? Where do they get transported to? Where do they accumulate? What impacts they have where, you know, in different environmental compartments uh, and to different organisms? You know, a small five millimeter particle is uh, towards a big fish is very different towards a little zooplankton, for example. Um, you know, so uh, it's, there's, there's quite a complexity to the whole issue and trying to sort of assess the risks. I think probably one thing that I always like to try and say about plastic and particularly microplastic pollution is that we use this one term, microplastic, and in our heads, we sort of think it's one thing. It's a bit like saying chemicals and meaning one thing. Actually, microplastic is this huge continuum of different sizes, shapes, polymer types. So it's a real complex mixture, and that's what makes it hard to assess uh, from a risk perspective. Well, okay. Well, I mean, what are you trying to ascertain? Well, actually, let me, let me back up from there. What are the role of some of these additives, you know, polyethylene or PET or, you know, again, what are the common roles where consumers yeah. would use it? Yeah, so these are, these are chemicals that you probably don't really, you wouldn't notice as a consumer, but they're the ones that protect in some cases. So quite a lot of plastic products will have U, what's called UV stabilizers added to them. That stops the plastic from degrading so quickly when it's exposed to sunlight. Um, so that's quite an important one. Some of these chemicals, they increase the flexibility of the particular polymer. That can be a very useful property. Others, if you're thinking of textiles, maybe your sofa at home, that's plastic fibers. Those will have flame retardants in them in case, you know, to try and stop them burning so quickly if there is unfortunately a fire. And these chemicals, you know, they're very important for how the material functions, but they're not bonded chemically to the polymer, which means that when they get these, this material gets out into the environment, these chemicals can leak out of the plastic and go into the environment and become a chemical pollutant as well. So this really is, they can be quite complex mixtures. Hey, what do you mean they're not bonded? They're like islands of pigments or islands of these, you know, I would think they would bond to the structure, at least superficially. You know, maybe through like weak bonds, but you know, the yeah, I mean, it's, the it's, it's weakly be. bonded. It's incorporated into the polymer matrix, but it's not what we would call covalently bonded in a chemical way. It, you know, the best way to sort of imagine it is that when they're um, making the the polymer material, it's obviously in a liquid form before you use it uh, to create whatever product you're, you you want to form or shape, and then you would add these various chemicals, whatever you're trying to make into that mixture and that would be sort of mixed in but it's not chemically reacted in it's loosely sort of trapped in there but these chemicals can migrate through the the polymer and certainly those that are in the surface layers can readily come out this is why bpa bisphenol a this is a chemical that a lot of people have heard about it's been in the media quite high profile that's a chemical that has been proven, it's been widely used as a softener or to increase flexibility. It's been widely used in many, many uh, consumer products in the past and is now trying to be phased out, particularly in children's toys, food contact materials, any products that babies would have. You don't want to have plastic materials that contain that particular chemical because it can leach out when, you know, it, it, on, on contact Um and that, but that's just one chemical. There's thousands and thousands of these different chemicals that are used as additives in uh, plastic products. Before we continue, 
I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So at the microplastic stage, what's observed you know, under microscopy or chemical testing? Is it just backbone presence of these, uh, you know, these plastics or are these additives still present in these microplastics? I mean, they are still present, certainly. But as the, the plastic, the thing is with microplastic, what you're sort of seeing is a degradation product. These are fragments of what used to be bigger products. It used to be a bottle. It used to be a children's toy. It used to be whatever it was. And these are small fragments of that material. So they're, they're, they're what we would call partially degraded. They haven't gone back to being converted all the way to carbon dioxide, which is like the end point for degradation of carbon-based materials. So this is like an intermediate step. And so maybe the surface layers of the microplastic particles would be have much fewer chemicals in them. but once you get into the core of the material still, um, they would still be there. And, you know, as you fragment, you increase the surface area relative to the volume, which means that the higher the surface area, the more of this leaching that can happen. But of course, this it's, it's complex. Again, you know, not all chemicals behave in the same way. Some leach out of plastic products much more easily than others because of their inherent chemical properties. And this is what is we're trying to understand right now. We, you know, we're still sort of learning this, you know, about this role of chemicals in plastic and seeing beyond just the, the polymer that we typically use to describe them. Have you seen anyone do some leaching experiments? You, know, you take, for instance, a couple of, uh, you take a plastic soda bottle, put it in a tank of salt water, some sand, put some ultraviolet lights on it and agitate it back and forth, back and forth, and then sample the water you know, constituency, uh, you know, after, you know, before you start, after a day, a week, a month, to see the leaching rate and the degradation rate? Absolutely. And that's exactly the type of studies that we conduct in, in our labs. So uh, we've been doing that. We have a, we're writing a science scientific paper right now where we've taken 50 random consumer products and we've done just that with them, put them into, uh, we've cut them up a little bit to make increase the surface area. And then we've, let them we've put them in water and then we've sampled over a period of time we've looked at what chemicals have leached out then what we've done is we've used a strong solvent to look at what chemicals are in the original material and then we're comparing what's in the material and what's leaching out and then we've also gone on to do toxicity studies with water containing the chemicals so we then take the particles out and we can see really really big differences so things like you mentioned water bottle because that's a food contact material, that's quite a heavily regulated sector. In our quite simple toxicity screening tests, we saw no toxicity, basically, from the leachate water from plastic bottle. But from other products, things like car tires, that, you know, some other rubber products, uh, PVC-based materials, we saw quite high levels of toxicity to our test organisms. This was microalgae bacteria. 
And, you know, so we're starting to able, and then we combine that with the analytical chemistry, which I have an interest in personally. So we're trying to identify these chemicals that we're seeing leaching out. And then we're starting to get an idea of what chemicals are driving toxicity when we start to see them occur in more than one material and we start to see toxicity in more than one material. Well, okay. So what about the degradation itself though? Plastic bottles, how long did it take stuff to degrade versus Uh uh, legend has it type assertions that it takes thousands of years, let's say. I love these questions. I love this question, and I love these um, these wonderful sort of graphics that that you see in magazines or news, which says uh, you know a baby's diaper takes a hundred years to uh, degrade, and a I don't know a, a plastic bottle takes fifty years to degrade um, is largely meaningless because <laughs> there's so many factors that control the degradation that you can't put a number on it. Actually, uh, for example. Most plastic, not all, but most conventional or common plastics are susceptible to UV degradation. But if they're, you know, a few hundred meters down in the dark, cold and on the seafloor, on the bed of the seafloor, they're not getting exposed to any UV. So the same product on a beach compared to the seafloor would degrade at totally different rates. Right, but um, what are some of the ballpark, ballpark numbers for these things? I mean, that you, you know, stuff, yes, yeah, certainly things that are on the bottom of the ocean. I mean, we're seeing that they're almost unchanged uh, over decades. They still, you know, plastic bottle goes down. It still looks like a plastic bottle 30, 40 years later, you know, and we haven't been using plastic for that long. It's only really since the fifties and it's only really in the last 30, 40 years, we've been using it in such large volumes. So I think we don't really know quite how long plastics will survive in certain environments. We do see on more exposed areas like, beaches or you know particularly if you have uv exposure lots of sunlight if you have waves crashing that are providing energy then the the degradation mechanisms can be uh quite a bit faster there and i mean but, I think but ballpark like like how long have you observed it takes things to degrade you know if they are well, exposed if they are in the surface of the water if they are yeah in i mean yeah. So for example we did a study what's very hard is converting what happens in the environment over natural timescales, which, as we've sort of just said, is years to decades to centuries, potentially, and trying to do that in a one or two, three year research project. So we have tools available. We use uh, we, we use artificial or artificially generated sunlight. So it has all the same wavelengths, but we can run it 24 hours a day. We can set it to levels that represent sort of peak summer days, maximum intensities. So we did a study that corresponded to about seven and a half years of natural time. We did it in 10 months and we were looking at fibers from synthetic textiles. Uh, And there we saw that polyester based fibers in particular, they broke uh, or degraded quite rapidly. And after 10 months, they've gone from being fibers to being tiny fragments of fibers, you know, that really sort of turned to dust. So you know, I mean, and so that's looking at years that you're getting, but there's still, the material is there, you know, it's just in smaller pieces. <laughs> so I think until it gets to, you can only say it's truly gone when it's been what we call mineralized by bacteria to carbon dioxide. And, and that we just, I don't think we really know, to be honest, Rich. Well, I mean, order of magnitude, what do you, what do you see? If I walk along the shore of a lake and I see plastics bobbing there, those are macros, but you know, if I look for the micros in that neighborhood, how long do you think it took them to get there? Well, if I, 
I took you on a boat out to the Pacific Garbage Patch. We hung out there. You know, where, how long do you think it took stuff to get to that state? What would be your order of magnitude? Uh, you know, thoughts. I mean, it's uh, we, well. Look at it this way: we're getting microplastic. We're seeing it everywhere. It's either produced or being released as microplastic through, you know, like degradation mechanisms through us using humans using the consumer products um, and going out, or it's degrading in the environment. And what we're pretty certain is that a large proportion, probably eighty percent of the microplastic in the environment, is actually formed on land through human activity and not through degradation. So I'm genuinely struggling to put any sort of meaningful or reliable number on, on your question. I'd love to be able to. I'm trying not to give a politician's answer either because that's not what I want to do. But uh, yeah, it's there's so many factors, you know, because different but, but it, at different See, the rates. problem is everyone says that, but then no one wants to do experiments, it seems like, to, uh, again, to get order of magnitude. Like, if I, yeah. just for instance, plastic bottles, again, if I threw them in this environment I'm talking about, yeah. and after a month, I saw nothing, okay. But if after a month, I saw, let's say, significant leaching or degradation, then mm -hmm. I could say, you know what? It's probably not 50 years in the environment, at least in conditions kind of like this. It actually looks like maybe months. So we can get, just like I said, an order of magnitude ballpark. Yeah. And from well, there, I mean, then yes, you want yes, it as... If you if you're saying that something is is it still recognizable as a bottle, then I would say floating on the surface, it's probably got some years before it's fragmented sufficiently. So a few decades, 20, 10, 20 uh, years on the sea floor where there's no energy, no UV, you, we're probably talking centuries potentially for the same item. So hey, well, something really something you said earlier, you said eighty percent of microplastics created are created before they're sitting in the environment like how created them like what what are your yeah, thoughts so on it's, where they come from it's even simple things like just opening a soda bottle you know you've got that friction of plastic against plastic that releases that's been shown to release some microplastics just opening the bottle you know think about uh, car tires is a good example every two three years depending on how much you drive you need to replace your the 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 tires on your vehicle because they've worn down and i think it's something like the average uh, car tire loses about one and a half kilograms in weight during the time from being brand new to needing changing so four tires i don't know on a car six kilograms so you know these are all types of sources this, uh, where we as humans through our activities are taking a large plastic item and fragmenting it into into microplastic through our actions so if you start to think about it you know lots of things wear out over time uh, just by using them you know again kids toys they get broken they they get lost well not lost but they you know they get Things get broken off um, textiles. Every time you're walking along the synthetic fleece, for example, a few fibers are being released. The same when you're washing the textiles, that process releases them. If you left, so that's what I mean that, you know, we, the estimates, these are all sort of calculations because you can't test this empirically. But this is good. These are, these are very useful estimates, you know, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, they are really useful, you know, and that was, and I think what that's what makes it kind of hard because there are so many of these diffuse emission scenarios. You know, take the textiles. It's a really hot topic again. There's a lot of focus on this. Everybody wears clothes pretty much. Um, and a lot of people have clothing that is uh, synthetic. And 
you know, there's been a lot of focus on the washing process as a source of release of fibres. But, if, you know, that fails to factor in that when you're wearing that item of clothing, you know, this friction when you're running or walking or doing whatever you're doing and just a few fibres come off all the time, you know, so this, how do you, how do you control for that? How, you know, this is what makes it hard to uh, sort of turn off the tap for this type of pollution. No, but that's very useful because, again, it shows that it may not be the environment that's largely responsible, but just the use of the item itself is what's causing this. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, at least in my opinion, I think that's, you know, all the evidence seems to indicate that that's the, the largest source because these degradation mechanisms are so slow. They do contribute. You know, we do see it. People, As you said, people can walk along the beach of a, of a lake or along the, the, the coast and um, you will see partially degraded items. They've been there. But we also have estimates that um, over 90% of microplastic is on the sea floor, not floating around in the water. Um, a lot of the litter is also on the seafloor. So you mentioned these garbage patches, and they are big and they're very unpleasant to look at. But they're only a small percentage of the pollution or plastic pollution that there is. A lot of it is on the seafloor below the surface where you can't see it so easily. And that's an area where it's also least likely to degrade. Oh, so you think um, a lot of this that's formed finds a almost permanent home on the seafloor and then just sits there? Or does it cause problems? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not unsurprising. We know that that's the case for quite a lot of pollutants, chemical pollutants, heavy metals or, you know, organics, those that are persistent and don't degrade quickly in the environment. You know, they typically accumulate in the sediments. So are design changes being suggested for certain uh, common use items or what would what would alleviate this problem besides not using it? <laughs> I mean, and that's the great question. You know, I mean, there's no way that we can move away from plastic. It's such an important part of our lives and our modern lives, at least. Uh, just, and- just tell governments that we need to go plastic zero and then they'll force it upon everybody. Don't worry. Can you imagine regardless regardless of the consequences? You know, know, it would be uh, it would be, you know, it's it's a nice ideal. But, you know, my my personal feeling is that, you know, we're not getting rid of plastic. It's an amazing material. It's allowed us to do so many things in this last 60, 70 years that what we do need to become better at is how we use it, where we use it, particularly how can we reduce look at ways for reducing the amount that is getting into the environment. There's a number of things that we you need to think about with plastic. Most of it still comes from fossil fuels. A lot of it's oil, you know, produced from oil. You know, so we, we want to be looking at how to improve recycling, both quantity but also quality. That's a big issue with recycling of plastics is being able to recycle it to a high enough quality that it can be reused in lots and lots of different scenarios or applications. And, you know, better waste handling processes. How can we sort of stop some of these releases? You know, the textiles industry is, you know, is really engaged, for example. They really don't want, no one really wants to be a polluter, you know. They they want to try and find out which of their different types of textiles, which one sheds the least, you know, and why. And can they learn from that? And how can they, you know, overall at least make some you know, uh, impact in reducing the amount of microplastic coming from textiles. I think, you know, we can all 
in our own way do a little bit you know just making sure that we put stuff in, in into the litter or trash uh, can um you know making sure that when it can be recycled put it in the right the right place simple things it's gonna you know it's a societal problem and it'll require societal level change and to to make things uh, better than they are currently well if you were to do a pareto of the plastics that are most commonly found in microplastic form in the environment what would it be um it's it, it's really perhaps not unsurprising it largely mimics the production volumes so the largest amounts of what we find in most places polyethylene polypropylene because those are the highest used there are we do find a lot of fibers actually so it's a combination of high production volumes for certain polymer types and also what products they're used for so and because we have over 7 billion people on the planet all wearing clothes it's not surprising that there's reasonable amount of fibers getting out we're all wearing these things every day we're walking down the street you know releasing little bits of fibers the wind picks them and transports them around um, we're also washing these garments and um, you know fibers are released that way so and, and there's some that we we find it difficult to analyze you know car tire particles are notoriously difficult to analyze in environmental samples so we don't really have a good handle on the concentration of those yet but i mean if you think about how many vehicles there are globally and you know as like i said before approximately one and a half kilos of mass loss for a tire over its lifetime um you know well, what's, what's interesting to me is that the problem is visual we think but actually from what you're saying the problem is invisible it's in the actual yeah. use of them. So if like you try to passivate clothing so that this wouldn't happen in use, then it ends up lasting longer in the environment, which is a visual issue for people. Yeah, let's say. exactly. <laughs> it's a catch-22 in a way, you know. I mean, it's, you know, and that's a big question that we're wrestling with in the environmental community. Is it better that something degrades and goes through this fragmentation process and forms microplastics, but eventually in whatever period of time or length of time uh, is converted finally to carbon dioxide, which is its own environmental problem, but we, we won't go there in, in this podcast. Is that better or is it better that a product stays as it is in the environment and doesn't degrade ever, but just becomes gradually buried in the sediment and becomes, you know, for want of a better analogy, you know, sort of fossilized in the sediment or contained there as it is and is gradually in millions of years reprocessed uh via the the earth's um uh, geotechnical processes yeah you know what's interesting is that passivating a material in a way buys you time because even if it goes into the environment which you know unfortunately probably likely will it buys science and people time to figure out how to recycle it i wonder if anyone looks at it that way yeah, I mean, this is such a hot topic. People are looking at it in all sorts of ways. Um, and, and certainly we know in pretty much every research field that the science cannot keep pace with societal demand for solutions. You know, we want to knowledge, you know, we want to generate this knowledge, but it, it does take time, particularly with complex issues. And these things are never black and white. And of course, you know, like you say, at least if something remains large and it goes on the seafloor, we have a chance of going back or, or going there at some point in the future and collecting it. But if it's fragmented to microplastic, you know, you're not getting that back. 
from the from the environment and we know that with chemicals you know we have these legacy chemicals that are really persistent ones that were widely used in the you know 40s 50s 60s and they're still sitting there in sediments around the world you know still causing problems they're not going anywhere and there's not a lot we can do about them that certainly is uh, easy to do or cost effective to do um so i would think know. is um as part of the design and use of any item that they probably should include a degradation plan you know how will the item be used for how long etc and maybe mm. tailor the degradation to that or have a buyback incentive for items that make sense so that exactly. people don't throw them away and they get incentivized to give them back you know yeah there's all there's all sorts of different uh, sort of concepts that are, are are being sort of put forward you know including those that you just mentioned uh, things like extended producer responsibility that you know the manufacturer of a product has a responsibility for the whole the product over its whole life cycle not just until the point that it's sold or the guarantee has run out on on it um you know so there's there's that side of things this you know what materials there's a lot of talk about you know should we shift more to biodegradable polymers you know that de- you know are designed to degrade more rapidly than conventional polymer types but there's you know there's lots of that sounds great on sort of quick analysis, but when you start to look into the details, there's some big issues around that concept in itself, actually. Yeah, very, very interesting. So what um, what questions are you trying to answer with your particular research right now? So right now, we are, we're, we're moving, actually, we've talked a lot about sort of plastic in general and microplastic, but the questions that we're particularly sort of looking at these additive chemicals that is high on our research agenda. We want to know more about these, um, how they leach out, what impacts they have on degradation processes, like I mentioned before. Some of them are added specifically to protect polymers from UV degradation. So that would extend the life of a material. So coming back to your question from earlier, how long would a, a plastic bottle stay in the environment. Well, if it has these additive chemicals in the polymer matrix, then it would stay longer than one without because it, they're protected. Um, and the other thing that we haven't mentioned, but is nanoscale particles, nanoplastic. And this is just coming up now. We're trying in the research community to develop the analysis techniques so that we can actually start to try and look at how much nanoplastic there might be in there, uh, in the environment. So, of course, we've gone from these macro items, they fragment into microplastic, but, you know, we're pretty certain that they continue fragmenting down into the nanoscale. And from a biological perspective, this is where it potentially gets quite interesting from a, an impact um, perspective, simply because once you get to the nanoscale, particles are small enough to start passing across biological barriers. So, with most microplastic, it's too big. If an organism ingests it, it goes into the gut and it comes out the other end. But the sort of hypothesis is that nanoscale particles, they're small enough to actually pass through the gut wall and go into an organism. But what we don't have right now are the, the techniques available for going out and knowing how much micro, uh, nanoplastic there are uh, there is in the environment. It's a, it's a complete you know unknown, really. But I think it's until this year, there's been five papers that have tried to do this, and they've been very good studies, but I'm sure all of the authors would agree that these are first steps towards a better understanding of that. So I think that's that's going to be really interesting, because I think from a risk perspective, nano has the potential to be more 
of a risk than microplastic. Yeah, I've heard there's uh, microplastics in people's blood and in fetal cord blood. And I, would, I would guess people that have leaky gut would be more likely to have permeable membranes that, that this stuff gets through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, that's where it starts to all link together. If you've got these particles that contain all sorts of, let's call them interesting additive chemicals or plastic associated chemicals, and those are passing through and accumulating in, in the body of an organism, including humans, of course, then, you know, if they're sitting there, are they leaching these chemicals out into the organism uh, if they're being accumulated? So it all starts to sort of tie together uh, the chemical side and the particle side. And that's what we, that's also a big question. We still don't have a very good idea of what is we've seen there's more and more toxicity data coming for microplastic nanoplastic but what we still don't fully understand is what properties of the particles whether it's the particles themselves whether it's the chemicals associated with them is actually causing toxicity and that's going to be important that could be where we can make real change if it is primarily the additive chemicals can we look to find alternative chemicals that still do the same job, a consumer product, but less toxic or less impactful on the environment or uh, organisms. Well, very good, Andy. Where can people find out more about your work? So folks can find out more about uh, my work by following me on Twitter. I'm at Norway underscore Badger. You can check out the Sintef Ocean websites. If you you search engine of your choice and put in Andy Booth and Sintef, you'll find me. And there's a list of all the projects that I'm involved in. I'm involved in many, many different projects, many related to plastic of different types. Yeah, so those are good places to find me. And here, of course, on the Finding Genius podcast. <laughs> well, very good, Andy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me on, Richard. It's an absolute pleasure to have been here and have a chat with you uh, today. You've been listening to the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.